For the honor and glory of your name, we dive into the study of Scripture. Speak, Lord. And may, may, may the bigger miracle actually be that we hear and apply, that we leave changed from the way we came. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Okay, I need you to listen very carefully. I'm going to explain something to you. And I need your full attention. Put it at the very front here so I can explain it. Let me put it as a picture on the screen. The legality of owning one of these, kangaroo. If you live in Wisconsin, West Virginia, or South Carolina, you can own a kangaroo without a permit. Do you understand? If you live in Washington, Idaho, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you can own a kangaroo, but you must have a permit. Do you understand me? All right. So Wisconsin, West Virginia, South Carolina, you do not have to have a permit to own a kangaroo. But if you live in one of those other ones, Washington, Idaho, Northwest there, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Illinois, I'm repeating it so you get it. Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you have to have a permit to own a kangaroo. Now what about if you live in Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, Mississippi, Oregon, any other state, the states you see in red there, you cannot own a kangaroo. You got a kangaroo, get rid of it. Apparently you got to give it to somebody that lives in Wisconsin, West Virginia, or South Carolina. Okay? Any other state in red, we're in red, Colorado, my home state of Oregon, it's in red, can't own a, own a kangaroo. You cannot own a kangaroo. Do you get it? All right. Now, just keep in mind, kind of extra credit here, that if you do live in Colorado, you can't own a kangaroo. But you can't own a camel. You can't, you're not supposed to smoke them, but you can own one. All right? Now, I don't know why you need to know all of that. And someday, if your brain drive runs out of storage, feel free to delete the information. Make room for something else. Point is, what we're going to talk about next is something that we need to know. Don't worry about the kangaroos. <laughs> but what we, do, what we do study today, you do need to know. So grab your Bibles. You didn't bring your Bible? There's a pew Bible right in front of you. You can grab that pew Bible or your phone, of course, electronic device if you have it. What we're going to study, what we're going to spend the rest of our, of our moments together in study is life and death. I shared with you Dwayne Esmond's line in, in the ministry magazine of December 2022, just a few months ago, when he wrote that article back to the altar and it grabbed our attention. He writes, the broken worship altar, that is the personal and family worship altar, represents the single greatest threat to the Christian life and purpose. You say, I'm a Christian. The broken altar, the forgotten altar of personal worship or family worship, represents the single greatest threat to your Christian life and purpose. You say, I'm a Christian. I don't know what my purpose is. Maybe it's because of the altar, the broken altar. The restoration of the personal and family, the, the restoration of personal and family worship among Christians is the most pressing need of our time. And so we took Esmond at his word, and we said, well, let's spend some time going back to the altar. And so we opened our Bibles last week to the law of the altar, Exodus chapter 20. But today we're going to Exodus, not Exodus, we're going to Genesis, Genesis 8. Genesis 8 is the first direct reference in Scripture to an altar. Now there's, now there's, it's inferred earlier on with Cain and Abel. They were to bring their gifts, but it never says to the altar. Never says that there was an altar. But in, in uh, Genesis chapter 8, we pick up the story of Noah. All right? Got your Bibles open to Noah. We're going to hit the end of Genesis chapter 8, and then we're going to jump into Genesis chapter Nine. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 18. Here it is, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 18. So Noah came out. What did he come out of? Together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. What did he, what did he come out of? Well, we know. He, they'd been locked up in, a, in an ark. Running, this, running the globe. 
The, the high seas, literally the high seas. Not for 40 days and 40 nights, that's, that's the, the rainfall. They were locked up there for months and months and months, and now he came out. He came out. Now imagine, after being locked up in an ark for a year, and you land on now what has, is, being, uh, is just totally a rearranged planet. I mean, the planet is just different. It, it's, it's wrecked. And you get out of the ark. There, it seems like there's a few things on your to-do list. Mrs. Noah, as we affectionately refer to her, no doubt had the honey-do list of what needed to be done. Maybe, maybe a little a little garden. We need some fresh fruits and vegetables. Hey, let's get those, those trees and that vineyard planted right away because we haven't had some of that in a long time. What about a little house? They probably didn't like the idea of a little anything. Maybe a big house. They were tired of living in the space. We want a big house, lots of windows, and uh, open space. But, but verse 20 jumps up and says, and says, then the very first thing, the very first thing that Noah did is the, biblical, is the very first biblical reference to the altar. Then Noah built an altar. It's the very first thing he did. He comes out of the ark. He does nothing out. Everything, everybody gets out. Everybody, come on out. Everybody, up, oh, yep, yep, you too, mm-hmm, you too. Everybody out. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he sacrificed. He sacrificed some of the clean animals. Why is that important? Because he, he arrives on a wrecked planet and it seems like it would have made common, good sense for, for them to save what they could eat, the clean animals. But he says, no, no, no. What is first is first. The very first thing that Noah did, and if ever there was a man that had a, that had a list of things he needed to do, it was Noah. But the very first thing he did was to build an altar. I'm coming back, God. I'm coming back to the heart of worship where I give you everything. Now, we get, we get the, the, the two-sided view. God looks down at this moment. Pick it right up. God looks down at this moment and he smells, verse 21, the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma and said to his heart, and said in his heart, the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma. What, what was so pleasing about it? Well, just, just track the context. Noah gets off of the ark. The very first thing he does, the very first thing he does. I'm going to try to say it enough so that it just, it just, it just brainwashes us. The very first thing he does is build an altar and meet God at the altar in sacrifice. And then the Bible unpacks this. Possibly Moses, while he's shepherding the sheep, he is now writing the book of Genesis and sharing this story. And he says, And the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Three things, three things I just want to pull out of this verse 21. Number one, it's a pleasing aroma. When you, when you know that you are number one in somebody's life, it is a pleasing, it is a satisfying, it is a fulfilling experience. You know that you are number one. Talk about marriage and the destruction that happens when a spouse discovers that they are not number one because of someone else, because of an addiction, because of... But how satisfying, how fulfilling it is to know that you are number one. Secondly, God said in his heart, what kind of language is that? It could have said he said with his mouth, but it says he said in his heart because this is a relationship he has with Noah and his heart is actually satisfied. God's heart is pleased and he has an emotional response. God has an emotional response because of Noah. It's in his heart that he says this. Come on, let's talk Valentine's Day. You've got it on your calendar. It's Tuesday, just in case. 
I'm, a, I'm kind of an odd man out here. You know, I was heartbroken at age 13 when I found out that Mandy gave everyone a Valentine's card in, quote, no particular order. I wasn't the only one. I wasn't even first. But I like these little chalky hearts, you know, the ones that we, we eat just because they're sitting around and nobody else eats them? These little, these little chalky, chalky hearts that uh, I never knew until I just read this package that they come in different, there's banana and orange and lemon and cherry and grape. And they say things like, be mine. Sorry, I didn't realize that was gonna be as loud in your ear. <laughs> I won't do a second one. <laughs> You're number one. That's God bending over this, this moment with Noah. And Noah says, God, it's the very first thing I do. Come, family. We are going to worship. We're going to offer up a sacrifice because God is number one. The very first thing Noah did was to meet God at the altar. The what? The very first thing. How satisfying it is to know that you are number one in somebody else's heart. That's the, that's the, that's the privilege and joy of marriage, right? Of a relationship. You are my best friend. I have friends, but you're my best friend. You are number one in my heart. And that became satisfying, an emotional response from God. And then he says the third, so number one, God pleased this, God was pleased with this aroma because he, he's, he had this emotional response realizing that there was a relationship here with Noah. And so he said, I will never curse the ground because of humans. And because of his relationship, Noah or God actually does something for the planet Earth because of his relationship with Noah. I believe one day we will find out as heaven traces the history of the world back how often God set his protection over a place or a people because he had friends there. God is into this relationship. Ah, keep reading. Then God, this is now in chapter 9, verse 1, then God blessed Noah and his sons. Because of this moment, what happened? There was this flood, and then Noah gets out of this just incredibly harrowing experience. And he says, the very first thing I'm going to do is meet God at the altar. And because of that, God is pleased. His heart is filled with joy. And he decides he will not ever curse the earth because of that relationship. And then he blesses. Wait a minute. If you're, just, if you're thinking back to the law of the altar, Exodus 20, verse 24, I'll put it on the screen for you. This was the command God eventually gives the children of Israel. Make an altar of earth for me. And then he says, Whenever I, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. That's the relationship at the altar. When you come to the altar, God says, I will meet you there and I will bless you. I will bless you because that's what I want to do. I want to bless you. And for when and for how long. And that's, this, is, this is just a, an entire kind of paragraph in Scripture. I've, I've got it underlined and, and highlighted in my Bible. But we're just going to kind of skip around on the screen because I've just copied and pasted the, the line over and over and over. But if you were to look down and read this section between uh, 9 and verse 8 all the way down to verse 17, you will find just one line popping up over and over and over. And uh, so let's go. I'll just put it on the screen for you. Uh, Revel uh, Genesis 9 and verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him. Verse 9 now. I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you. Keep reading. Verse 15. I will remember my covenant between me and you. Verse 16. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Verse 17. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established Oh, come on. Do you see it? God says, I just want you to know this, this can go on forever. 
You and me, what we just started, Noah, at this altar, we can keep this up forever. This relationship, you and me meeting first thing, we can do this through the ceaseless ages of eternity. This is a covenant. This is just, we'll just everlasting, just keep going and going. This isn't a one-time moment. This isn't even a weekly experience in the pew. Shame. This is me and Jesus. And he says, by the way, by the way, this is going to be an experience of blessing. I'm going to just keep blessing you. And, keep, and God, when does that kind of run out? When do you kind of empty the coffers of blessing? Well, apparently, it doesn't ever end. It just keeps going deeper and more rich and more rich forever. Because Noah made it the first thing. I've got to pull out verse 13 because this is kind of the magnum opus of God's response to this altar being the very first thing that Noah does. This is, this is God's magnum opus sign and it's never been outdone. Verse 13, he says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I've set my rainbow in the clouds you know there's something there is something galvanizing and beautiful about a rainbow you can have the most hardened manly men out playing uh, just a nip and tuck game of softball out in a field and someone will point hey there's a rainbow these manly men will huh Oh, it's kind of like a baby. You, there's nobody too hardened for ah, a rainbow. God takes this bow and he sets it in the cloud. He says, this is going to be a sign that this covenant can last forever, that this relationship can last forever. And he uses this Hebrew term, kashet. I'm going to set my kashet, which is the exact Hebrew expression for a warrior's bow. And the expression, I will set it down. It's, it's twofold, both the rainbow. We're going to come to in a moment. But it's also the language of a warrior setting down his arms in an act of surrender. I will not be against you, God says. I'm going to set my bow down. I will always be for you. That's the gospel. <laughs> I want you to know, I'm setting my bow down, my warrior's bow. You think I'm coming after you? Nah, no, I'm going to set my bow down. I'm going to come for you. I'm not coming after you, I'm coming for you. I want you. I want this everlasting covenant. I want to be in a relationship. I want my heart to be filled. I want to bless you and fill your heart. I'm going to set my bow down. And then he, and then this picture of a rainbow throughout the rest of Scripture. Let me just throw a couple of other verses on the screen for you. One is Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 28. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is the very presence of God, this rainbow. The revelator, this is now the New Testament in Revelation. The rainbow becomes the signet that you are in the throne room of God. Verse 2 of, of Revelation chapter 4. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This was the throne room of God. What's the point? Twofold. One, God sets his bow down. He is not the warrior coming after you. He is coming for you. Secondly, that rainbow is a sign that you are in the throne room of God. And what God wanted to communicate to Noah was, when you come to the altar first, I want you to know that you are welcome right into the throne room. You can come in. Paul picks it up in Hebrews chapter 4 where he said, we can come with confidence into where? Into the throne room to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. This, 
This incredibly beautiful moment was to last forever. It was between God and humanity, not just Noah. He was just the example. The altar was God's invitation to come into his presence. But theologians will tell us there's something way deeper here about how God communicates to Noah. It's the very first, in the Bible, it's the very first formal covenant ritual in all the Old Testament. This is not just the first altar, but it's this, this expression where, where man comes and meets God at the altar and God responds with affirmation. And ritual language, covenant ritual language is this. There are some expectations of the covenant. It's the same thing that happens on this platform when two people are united in marriage. There is a blessing and there are expectations. Do you take her in sickness and in health? And Yes, there's expectations. And so God actually goes into Noah and says, by the way, I'm going to bless you, but now I need you to do, be fruitful. I need you to... And he outlines in the first few verses of of Genesis chapter 9 the expectations. But a ritual covenant always starts with a blessing. You will be blessed through this. It always starts with a blessing. Okay. If you can just grab this, then we'll move right into how we can unpack it uh, in the last few moments here. A ritual covenant, this is the first, recorded in scripture, Genesis chapter 9, starts, it is always a ritual covenant, always starts with a blessing, and then moves into the expectations of that covenant. Now, if you go to the longest recorded sermon of Jesus, it's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and it starts with blessings. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And then the rest of chapter 5 and the rest and chapter 6 and chapter 7 begin to unpack the expectations. They unpack the expectations of this covenant relationship. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing different than what had always been played out for Old Testament Israel. I want to bless you, but here are the expectations of the covenant. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus now saying, this, this is still the truth and the reality of your relationship with Jesus. In the very heart, in the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't word count it out, but in the very center of this emerges this verse that has been cited and recited. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. It's the first. When we're willing to go to the altar first, that covenant of blessing is ours. Blitzer Prize winner and American author Annie Dillard writes, how we spend our day is, of course, how we spend our lives. But that reality check just causes you to pause. How are you spending today? How are you spending tomorrow? How am I spending my day? Because how I spend my day will be how I spend my life. How am I spending my day? It's how I'm spending my life. I want to throw a couple of lines. No. Yes, I want to throw a couple of lines on the screen and then I want to give you just a window into my own story for just a minute. Another American author, a woman, Ellen White, prophetic voice in Steps to Christ, writes these words and I'm, going to just, I'm just going to put them up on the screen and, and invite you to just salivate on these words. Consecrate yourself to God in the morning. That's the first thing. 
Make this your, and then she uses that operative word. Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, and then she, she gives us a prayer to even pray. Let your prayer be. Take me, O oh Lord, as holy thine. I lay all of my plans at your feet. Use me today in your service. Abide with me, and let all my work be wrought in thee. And then she continues. This is a daily matter. How you spend, Annie Dillard would say, how you spend your day is how you spend your life. Ellen White says, that's right. This is a daily matter. Unless you're spending your life meeting him at the altar, consecrating yourself to God in the morning, make this your very first work. Unless that's a daily matter, you are not spending your life with him either. Don't be foolish. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to him to be carried out or given up as his providence shall indicate. Thus, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God and thus your life will be molded more and more after the life of Christ. Do you see how Ellen White and Annie Dillard are just of the exact same mind? How you spend your day is how you spend your life. Ellen White says, yes, day by day, you may be giving your life into the hands of God. How you spend tomorrow morning, how you spend Monday morning is how you're spending your life. And Noah walked out of the ark and, spent, and said, I'm spending my life with this God. I'm going to meet him the very first thing at the altar. Mark Batterson, a book my wife gave me of an author I appreciate. He's written several books in his volume, All In. He says, hey, let's talk about that word consecrate. You want to talk about that word consecrate? It means to set yourself apart. By definition, consecration demands full devotion. It is the throning yourself and enthroning Jesus Christ. When, we, when, when Ellen Wright writes this idea of consecrate yourself to God in the morning, make this your very first work, she's saying you set yourself apart. It does take a little bit of guarding. Hey, I'm going to set this time apart because this moment with Jesus is a time I need to be dethroned. He needs to be enthroned. This time is valuable and it needs to be set apart. Consecrate is not something that happens while you drive. And you text because you text while you drive, shame. And you drink your hot... I just... Somebody shared with my wife some... Uh, I don't even know why I'm talking about this, but it's some strange hot drink made out of some strange garbanzo bean. But if you're doing that and you're driving and you're saying, no, 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 me and Jesus will have this time too. That is not setting it aside, beloved. Mark Batterson is... <laughs> Consecrate means it's a moment in which you have to set everything else aside and to dethrone yourself and enthrone Jesus. Meet him at the altar. And that's what Noah did in that sacrificial moment when he took what would have been their food supply and offered it as a sacrifice to Jesus. All right. Back in December. Back in December... In a moment, God showed up in my life. I didn't schedule it. It wasn't expected. Didn't have time set aside. I, I do my, my, I, my morning time with Jesus. I am committed to that, but it wasn't in the morning when, he, when this moment came. God picked another time, an evening, in which he tapped me on the shoulder and he broke me. He broke me. And over the next couple of days, God said to me, Michael, you've been living in the shallows. God, I haven't been living in the shadows. What are you talking about? I, I've been trying to go deep. I said, I know, I know, but you're holding out on me on some things. God, what are you talking about, God? Yeah. What about the criticism you, you offer of others? It, it may be true, but it's... Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount unpacks it. It says, you don't call your brother foolish. Just shut your mouth. What about, what about the hours a month? It's, I'm not trying to over... It's not hours a day, but what about the hours a month you have lost on YouTube? Give a reckoning for those. Okay, God. 
What about the, the guards you have relaxed in your own life? The, the, the protection, the moral standards that you have let down? What about the diligence with your money? Every dollar, here or there, that has been wasted, frittered away, Michael. I'm talking about your minutes and your dollars. You don't think they're much, but they add up. You are wasting away parts of your life. <laughs> and then he said, uh, and what about all that snacking you do? And I said, well, okay, God, time out. <laughs> you got to take this a little bit at a time, all right? The last two months, beloved, I tell you with my, my humble heart, I've experienced a reconversion. You say, really? YouTube and snacking? Is that what you're talking about? No, I'm talking about a heart that said little things don't matter, God. I've got the big things in order. I'm good now. I'm talking about this, this idea somehow that exists in Christianity that as you age, there gets to be a point where you no longer have to ask God, God, is there anything else about what I listen to, what I watch, how I dress, what I eat, how I spend my time, and how I spend, is there anything else, God, you want to change? We stop asking the question, probably because we want to stop hearing the answers. Melanie and I are, are doing a, a marriage retreat later this spring for another part of the country. We've been asking anybody we can sit down with, so watch out. If, you, if you're sitting still, we're going to come talk to you. Hey, what, what about your marriage? What makes it extra special? We're riding the ski lift last week, and we're asking everybody on our ski lift over and over and over. And we walked away. I told Melanie, I said, the, the, the thing that's coming to me is that intimacy is birthed in the small stuff. Because these married couples are telling us what makes their marriage last and what makes their marriage special is intimacy in the small stuff. It's the stuff that nobody else would think is big. There's no, there's no pornography. I'm not watching pornography, God. I must be okay. But he says, man, you lost 15 minutes last night on TikTok. What's up with that? And it wasn't even anything good. You have to give an account for those 15 minutes because those were life I gave you, Michael. I don't watch TikTok for the reference, but I'm, I'm guessing somebody might. But YouTube or TikTok or TikTok or, or surfing the web or watching or whatever it is, you're wasting away your life, Michael. Now, you want to be serious with me. You want to get out of the shallows and go into the deep. Let's talk. And God broke me in a night, beloved, and I haven't been the same for the last 60 days. It's hurt. But if you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, you will find that Jesus was all about the small stuff. Stop the second look of that woman, boy. It wasn't, wasn't pornography. It was just, stop it and stop the line and stop worrying about your tomorrows and stop calling somebody else. Stop your criticism of someone else. Stop it. Oh, it's God, it's the small, I didn't, I didn't do that. It wasn't the killing or, or murder, or it wasn't murder, or it wasn't the Sabbath. It was, God says, intimacy is in the small stuff. And so I've gone back to my time of worship, back to the morning altar asking Jesus, Jesus, what about the small stuff? What about the stuff that nobody sees Nobody hears about. A little proverb popped up in one of the books I was reading. It's the all for, all for the want of the horseshoe. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. It's the little things. And meeting Jesus at the altar will change us. But it will bless us and it will fill us and it will bring pleasure and satisfaction to his heart and to our heart. It will make life more beautiful and less stressful than ever can be imagined.
It takes a little bit of commitment, beloved. I share a friend with many of you, Dr. J.P. Jordan, pediatrician, but he wasn't giving me medical advice. He was just recommending as a friend. I'm going to put a picture on the screen that some of you are going to need to cover your eyes. It is so gross. I'm just, I'm warning you. You got your warning now. Let me put this picture on the screen. Some of you will need to cover your eyes. I have spent 42 years barely able to look at these things. I hate them. I hate walnuts. They're gross. They look gross. They taste gross. But apparently, some bright scientist in some back room has said, those walnuts are good for you. They will make your mind sharp, or help it at least. And so, I understand I shared this distaste with Dr. Jordan, and he, he said, well, I just, I eat a handful every day to break that. And so, since early January, I've been eating a handful of walnuts every morning. For the first couple of weeks. But truth of the story is, truth of the story, this last week, I began to look forward to my handful of walnuts. How is that possible? For 42 years, I have hated these things. But somehow, making the discipline of meeting with these walnuts every day has brought a certain amount of pleasure and satisfaction and reward. And God says, I want to meet you at the altar. I know you're going to be sleepy. I know you think it's boring. I know you think it's waste of your time. But if you meet me there over and over and over and over, I will let it grow on you and it will become something beautiful for you. I've got to tell you this story and then I'll sit down. Miriam, you might have seen her video on the news networks this last week. Her and her little brother, Ilaf, trapped in the concrete rubble of what was their apartment building for 36 hours. Let me put their picture on the screen. That's Miriam. That is her, she's, she's seven years old. And that's her little brother. For 36 hours, she cradled him in her arms and whispered reassurance to him, stroking. You can see, not on the still picture, but on the video, you can see her stroke his hair as she kept him calm for 36 hours. A rescuer. A rescuer finally gets to her, and this is now the image taken on his helmet or, or body cam of some sort. He's taking this video as he gets to her, and he's reaching now, clearing away the rubble, and he's face to face to her, and she says to him, help us, help us, please, get us out of here, and I will be your maid forever. The rescuer responds, no, 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 you don't need to be my maid. I, no, no, I'm going to help you. I will save you, but you don't owe me anything. I will save you. And as she strokes the, little, the head of her little brother, it, you just can't help but break your heart. She says, please, get us out of here, and I will, I will do whatever you need me to do for the rest of my life. Just save him. The devil has duped us into thinking this whole altar thing was about God saying, yep, I want a maid. I want you to be my servant. I want you to meet with me. I want five. I want early in the morning. I want you to meet with me. It's not at all that. God is, God is expecting something from us. He wants to free us from the rubble that we've been caught in, from the concrete prison we are in. We can't save ourselves. He said, I'll save you. I'll save you, and you owe me nothing. You don't, it's not being my servant. I just want to save you. So what's your response? Last week, we started a 28 days challenge. You say, oh, I wasn't here. Well, 
those that started the 28 days may have maybe reading a chapter from Matthew. There's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. You say, well, I, I, I can't get it done now. And I, there's only 21 days. Well, what about the gospel of John? There's 21 chapters in the gospel of John. Pick up, pick up something with your family, with your personal devotional time. Pick up something and start the altar with Jesus. He wants to meet you there and free you from the rubble. No, no, don't, don't worry about being my maid. I just want to free you. Meet me there. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Here's my appeal to you. Start a journey with Jesus. Start a journey with Jesus by yourself and with your family. Start a journey with Jesus. The, the deans, we asked the deans, we said, what can we do to help encourage our young people on this campus? And they said, you know what? It would be great if some of, some of the church would just be willing to come over and share their personal stories of their personal worship with Jesus or, or, or pray with our students to ask God to increase their journey. I wonder if you would, I'm going to put the connect number up and the connect card is in the pew back in front of you. If you would be willing to go to the dorm, it will be based on your schedule, but, but one time to go share what you do for personal worship, what it means to you. If you would just text the, the 970-279-3432 or fill out the connect card that's in the pew in front of you. And then you put that connect card into the offering baskets that will collect our tithes and our offerings in just a moment. But if you'd be willing to go to the dorms and just share your personal testimony of how meeting with Jesus at the altar has changed your life or ideas on how you, what you've tried. We need men and women. So, so we need you to just let us know and the deans will be in touch and, and help connect the time that you are available. So fill out the connect card or text the number. If you're new here, you can text that number that you're new. We'll get a gift to you. If you want to make a decision for Jesus, fill out that connect card or text that number. But go to the altar, the very first thing. The very first thing. And Jesus, Jesus will change. Change your hurt, your brokenness. He will heal. He'll convict. So as the ushers collect our tithes and our offerings and our connect cards, we're going to sing our theme song, O Come. You hear the invitation? O Come to the Altar. The theme song might be new to some of you, so for those of you who it's new for, we have sheet music in the hymnals if you'd like to follow along. to the 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before the glorious, before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.